Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things delivered in, uh, unto me of my Father. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for your precious, blessed, perfect word. Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity, Lord, to be taught directly by your spirit today. So I pray that you would simply use me as an instrument in your hand, Lord, that I would only speak your words and that you would teach us from your word directly. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of being able to come before your throne this morning to learn and feed from this precious book that we hold in our hands. Lord, I pray that we would indeed honour you by obeying you and loving you the way you have loved us. So this morning I pray that our love for you, our obedience to you, would be deeper and more profound than it was before we got together. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyone ever seen those, the, the mice on that wheel that goes around and around? It's amazing how fast they can go. And when they, when they pick up speed, the wheel actually produces a certain amount of, of uh, momentum for the mouse. So the mouse then struggles to stop. You just keep on going. This, in this passage today, Jesus says, um, come unto me, all you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, the world that we live in, the, this society and everything around us, is very much like that mouse in the wheel. And oftentimes you, you're in the wheel for so long that you don't actually get the perspective from the outside of the wheel because you're inside it for so long. When you're in the middle of something, it's very hard to see what's going on and why you're doing things and, and how you've ended up where you are unless you extricate yourself from that wheel and have a look at it from the outside. And so the beautiful thing about God's word is that it's the perspective of us and this world from the outside. It tells us and gives us a clear picture of this is what's happening to you. And so there are many people who look for rest. And we go on, there's plenty of people on holidays, which is really nice. You can go away, have time away. But tell me, when you go on holidays, whoever thinks it's enough? <laughs> I haven't heard one person say, oh, no, that's enough holidays for me. You know, it's too much holidays. Um, Whenever you go away, whenever you, you take time um, to have a break, it's always never enough. Like you, you, you sort of start to, you know, the first week, whenever I go away on holidays, the first week is just 
getting my brain into a different type of thing. It takes a, a few days before I stop thinking because it's running at a certain pace. The problem is uh, that sometimes when, you, when you're in something for so long, you don't realise what you're doing. And this is not a sermon about stopping work, okay? So sorry to all of you who are already getting your hopes up. That pastor's telling us that we should live, you know, somewhere in a commune somewhere and just live off the land or something like that. No, um, this, is a, this is about coming to Jesus to find genuine rest, okay? Not, rest, not physical rest because, <coughs> because we live in a fallen world and you have to work. But what, I would, what I'm hoping for us today is that as we, as we look at this particular passage, that we will be able to look at our own lives from a different perspective, from God's perspective, and say, why am I going in this direction that I'm going? And it all begins by being told off. Are you all ready for it? Okay. Because Jesus had just told off cities <laughs> that he had done miracles in. He had told them off pretty badly. Now, how do you feel when someone tells you off? Who enjoys, hands up, who, being, who enjoys being told off? <laughs> Not one of you. Well, Jesus has told off this, these cities pretty badly. And as you probably understand, when, you, when you're told off, what, do you, what normally goes through your mind? If someone's giving you a good hammering, a good, a good shellacking, they're, they're telling you, you know, you're, you're, you're no good, you've done this wrong, or you've said this wrong, or you've made a mistake, does your blood pressure begin to rise as you think about, what am I going to say to this person now to put them back in their place? Because I know that, that's what happens to me. My flesh automatically thinks, my brain automatically goes to, how dare they <laughs> tell me off? That's not nice, what they're doing. They're hurting my feelings. No one likes to be told off, do they? Especially if they've done something wrong. You know, whenever people go to uh, to court, they never, they never, you, you rarely find people that's, that are in the middle of a court case say, oh, you know what? Yeah, I was wrong. I was guilty. You know what I mean? Um, so Jesus has performed miracles in these two cities and it says that he has just finished upbraiding them, upbraiding, um, because he had done miracles in those cities and they didn't repent. Okay, so here is God sending his son into, into a, a city, like say he came around this area and he has performed some pretty serious miracles which should get your attention, but they didn't. Not only didn't they didn't get their attention, but they didn't actually see the ramifications of the importance of what he was uh, on about. And so he's told them off pretty badly. And they had remained unrepentant because the Messiah had arrived and they didn't recognize him. And he said to them, like, if these same things had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented way a long time ago. But you guys don't get it. God has actually done these things for you, which is a privilege that you get to see them, which is, should be an eye-opener for you, which should, which should get you stopping the wheel and looking and saying, what? What was that? Instead, they just kept on going, not repented, which means stop the wheel and have a look and say, what am I doing going in this direction? Their lack of repentance indicated 
A problem that most people have, and that's pride. See, the reason that we get we get upset and we get hurt when someone tells us off is because it's a little thing called pride. Okay? And pride is a it's it's a it's a devilish thing, okay? Because it can masquerade in a number of different ways. And and, and pride is that's it's built into every one of us, but it's like a self-defense mechanism that protects our flesh, that protects our fallen nature, because our fallen nature wants to be God. And so how dare someone tell God off? And these people didn't <laughs> repent because part of their problem was pride. You know, Jesus has come, they're on the wheel, and they're making good progress. How dare you come and tell me that I'm not making progress here, that I'm not going, look how much effort I'm putting into this thing. Don't come and tell me that I'm wrong, because I can't possibly face that. And if you've told me that I've been wrong all these years, going in this particular direction, that's not something I can swallow. Therefore, I have to reject you. The lack of repentance was the fruit of a proud spirit that refused to listen. But you know when someone who is proud gets told off, what happens to the pride? It just flares up even more. And that's why Jesus says, and if you go back to verse 15, he says, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Because most people don't have ears to hear. Most people don't want to hear. Because when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to God telling me about who I am and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, I'd rather not hear. Because if I hear, it may hurt my ego. It may hurt my feelings. And so people automatically do not hear. And naturally, we filter out those things which threaten our self-perception. Our high and lofty view of us, of me. There's an old friend of mine who used to play squash with when I was younger. We went to high school together. And I lost track of him a number of years. But recently, we, um, we, we sort of got connected again through LinkedIn. So most of you know LinkedIn is like that. It's the Facebook for business people. Right? Um, and every now and then, I'll see him post things. And so I've known him for a long time. He's a very nice guy, but he's not a believer. Okay? And so I've sort of been keeping track of his posts. And he's what you call a life coach. You know what life coaches, don't you? Okay. A life coach is, is someone who doesn't have the Bible, but is trying to tell you how to live your life to become successful. Okay? And so if it is a fairly successful life coach, from what I, what I can tell, you know, people go to him and they, they, they want to know how to live a, a happy and fulfilled and, and focused life and how to get the squeeze every bit of, you know, of that juice out of that, of that you know, time that they have. And, and he's there telling him stuff. And, and I was actually surprised some of the things that he's actually posted recently because it seems as if many of his lessons have been lifted straight out of the Bible. 
a lot of the lessons that he's sort of sharing with people are along the lines of things that I know that are principles in God's word, except you take out the God part, you take out the repentance part, take out salvation part, take out all the, the foundational things, and you're left with all the principles on top, which really, it's like putting the cart before the horse. One recent post was about, which I found interesting, was about how should you respond when someone is rude to you, when they're telling you off? You know how you've seen videos of people just losing their cool and getting upset with people when something doesn't go right or whatever else it may be. And there are, there are more and more people like that these days. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's ex-COVID stuff or whatever else is going on. But he said, well, how, how should you respond um, when someone is actually rude or nasty to you and they're telling you off. And uh, I thought it was interesting because he said instead of fighting back, instead of arguing back with them, he gave a simple advice and he said, just stop, listen to what they have to say. So don't interrupt them. Let them give you the full picture of what they intend to tell you. And then he says, ask yourself before you respond to them, what is this person trying to tell me about me? Is there something that I'm doing wrong? Is there something that I can improve in my own life? And I thought, wow, he's almost giving you a biblical perspective here. Because Jesus tells us, don't respond in kind to people that abuse you. Don't abuse them back. Many people... I think that's, that's biblical advice. Most people, while they're being told off, are automatically thinking of a response to that, that person. They're automatically formulating something in their mind because their ego is being hurt and they have to fight back. Otherwise, they're going to feel as if they've lost an argument and they're going to come out second best. But when you do that, when you're, and we all do it, right? So we're, when we're having a, a discussion with someone or maybe an argument with someone, while they're talking, tell me you're not, you're not already thinking about what you're going to say. And the reason, and, and the problem with that is that while we're doing that, because we can't lose a moment with our, with our response, is that we're not listening to what they're saying. You can't listen while you're thinking about a response while they're talking to you. And so everyone's in this game where they're trying to respond to each other, but no one's really listening to each other anyway because they are so afraid of getting their egos hurt and losing the argument. And, you know, this whole thing about, oh, if they tell me that I'm wrong, I'm going to, my life is going to fall apart. It's not going to be the same. So that advice from my friend, the life coach, is actually not bad advice. Just listen to what they have to tell you. Is there something they're actually saying? They may be saying it in a bad way. They may be saying it in a way that's actually, that you don't like, that might not be pleasant, but they actually may be saying something which may be a benefit to you and me. So when Jesus finishes telling off a whole city, and he's told them off pretty badly, he's told them off. It doesn't tell us exactly what words he uses here, but he has... He's given them a good blasting. One of the things that we need to understand is we need to be mindful of our pride.
for everything. Because our pride often masquerades as us. Instead of us recognising it's the flesh that's using that as a protective barrier, as a shield. And we often think, oh, that's just me responding. It's actually not us. Because God's given us a new nature. If you're born again here this morning, we have a new nature. And God's and God, we have the opportunity to actually look at how we respond and listen to people without being hurt. And the Bible says that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter, yet he opened on his mouth. Now I'm sure when he was before Pilate, he could have told Pilate everything. You know what I mean? But he didn't. He held back. He said that he could have called 12 legions of angels. But he could have told off Pilate pretty badly. In fact, he could have killed Pilate with the wink of an eye. He could have destroyed the whole Roman army. But he didn't. And so be mindful about what you're told and how you listen. Because how we listen will determine how we respond. And if we're listening only to protect our egos, then we're not going to hear from the word of God. You see, Praveen prayed a lovely prayer this morning. And part of it, part of his prayer was that we pray that the message today, or the word of God, would melt our hearts and would break the rocks. And every one of us has rocks there, okay, that need to be broken. But we protect our rocks. That's, our, that's part of our challenge because our ego doesn't like that hurt, okay? So listen to the word of God and what it has for you today, and I pray that you will be stronger as a result, not prouder, but stronger in the faith. And so be careful of your feelings. Feelings can often just be masquerading pride. And so here these people have rejected Christ because their feelings well, they didn't want to be told. They didn't recognize what was going on. And here's Jesus who's, who's told them off and they still don't get it. Okay, their, their, their feelings may have been uh, too hurt. And, and part of these beautiful example that we have about pride and arrogance and not being willing to repent are the Pharisees. Guys who had it all together. They had their doctrine worked out. They had the Bible memorized. They, they had the best positions or whatever. They were respected by everyone. They were good Bible teachers or whatever else that they were doing. But they were so proud when Christ came to tell them you have to repent and turn to me and that you can't earn your way into heaven because you're not good enough. There is no way in the world they were going to swallow that. They were just too good. And this brings us to first. 25. It says, and this lays foundation for verse 25, and it says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. It's God the Father who revealed this truth to them. It's God the Father who reveals genuine truth. And intelligence or super intelligence and super uh, and, uh, and, and power and authority and reputation don't matter in the whole thing. Because knowledge, intelligence, wisdom from an earthly point of view can be a stumbling block for most people. They can't be told something. 
because they're too proud already of what they know. And it says that he's, I thank thee, Father, because you've hidden these things from the, the wise and the prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Is, is Jesus saying that the children were getting the message? We're getting it. But, you know, the adults weren't. No, no, he's not talking about that. He's talking about a condition of the heart in coming to this particular message. So turn to Matthew chapter 18 with me just for a moment. Matthew 18, verses 2 to 4. Because there's a special condition that must be met if you are ever going to receive the truths from God and through his word. And it's found in another passage here where Jesus is speaking about children. And in verse 2 it says of chapter 18, And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the, into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be a little child? It means that you humble yourself before God. You understand that he is great, that he is intelligent, that he is powerful, that he is, has authority over you. And you humble yourself in order to receive his grace, something that you don't deserve. And you and I don't deserve. His grace means that your ears will be open to receive the truth and he will grant you his wisdom to understand that truth. See, you can know truth, but then what do you do with it once you, once you actually receive it? That's the big question for most people. You can have a lot of head knowledge about stuff. You can actually memorize most of God's word, but still not actually know what to do with it. And there are plenty of people who read the Bible day in, day out, but actually don't know what to do with it. They don't do anything with it. In fact, they become more proud and arrogant. It's the flesh which is the source of pride, which becomes a snare and a prison. And most people are stuck in that prison for a very long time and don't realize it. Only God can free a person if they would simply humble themselves before him. If they simply admit, I'm stuck, I can't get out. There is no hope for me other than you. Until a person comes to that point, they can't be freed from their own prison that they've created for themselves. It's only then that they can receive God's truth because they don't consider themselves more intelligent than God. James tells us in James 4, 6, But he, God, giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. You want peace in your life? The very first place to come, when, if you want peace and rest in your life, is to humble yourself before God. Because only then will you receive his truth. Only then will you actually take in his truth and do something with it. That's why the Bible tells us that that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If I cannot, if I don't get to the point where I understand that God is, is amazingly intelligent, infinitely more intelligent than me, more powerful than me, more holy than me. If I don't come to that place first and then submit myself to him as a superior being over me, then I will never receive the truth and understand it. Even collectively, 
Take all the supercomputers in the world. Take every computer and every laptop and every mobile phone and every person in this world. Put all their brains together. Put all that computing power together and you haven't even scratched the surface of what God's intelligence is. Even collectively we are insignificant with our knowledge. And so the Lord says in Matthew eleven twenty six, 26, he says, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. It's good. It seemed good to him to give a message to people, to say, to offer salvation to people in a way where proud and arrogant people won't be able to accept it. Where only people who will humble themselves first can actually see what's going on. God himself determined that this was a good thing. It pleased him to aid the ones who wanted his help, who realised they needed help, who humbled themselves before him. When it comes to the preaching of the gospel and salvation, that's the main reason men and women do not come to God, because they are too proud to hear that message, because the gospel breaks your heart. And Jesus says, he is the stone the builders rejected. And if you fall on that stone, you shall be broken. But heaven forbid that stone falls on you because you'll be crushed to powder. Yes, you have to be broken to come to God. You have to be broken and stay broken to receive and learn from him. If you want to stop the wheel of this thing that you're going through in your life, if you don't know what direction you're going in, if you're, if you're tired, then it could very well be you've been caught up in the wheel again. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The problem is that men are too proud to be told things, to listen. And this is the problem that we have with sharing the gospel with people in the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says to us, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. If you don't have the KJV, you've probably got, for unto us who are being saved, okay? which is a wrong translation. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 1.19, it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them, save them that believe. So it doesn't matter how much philosophizing we ever did, we could never understand God. Because there's only a limit to where we can actually go with that. But look at verse 25. It says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So congratulations, if you've received Jesus as your saviour here this morning, you are part of those foolish things. 
and you are part of the weak things that, that is being spoken about here. He's chosen you. You've chosen him. You are not mighty. We aren't great. We aren't powerful. We are small in number. But God has chosen and has saved us. We simply realized what salvation was and we received it as a gift. God has never needed strength. He has never needed men's power. He has never needed men's riches or anything to achieve his own purposes, has he? In fact, when it came to his own people, he always said to them, put those things away. I'll take care of things for you. When it comes to Gideon and, and building up an army to fight, I don't need all those people. Get rid of most of those people. When Israel entered the promised land and, and the, 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 the nations around them had chariots and horses and, and special swords and spears and all that stuff, God says, don't, you don't need those things. I don't want you to have horses and chariots because I'll defeat them for you. God's never needed any power on our, on our behalf. He never needs our money. But he's chosen to send his son into the world as a lamb to save us. He's chosen the weak things to save those that are weak, that understand that they're weak. The problem is that most people who are rich and powerful and wealthy, intelligent and smart and all those things have often convinced themselves that they don't need God. They don't need to be saved. They've got everything. The author R.C. Sproul once said, you don't have to give up your intellect to believe the Bible. You just have to give up your pride. And that's step number one. In order to receive the rest of these verses, you must first humble yourself and accept that God is right and man is wrong when it comes to these things. You must be willing to accept what he has to say about you and be willing to respond about what he wants you to do. But Jesus now provides us with a critical piece of information that will help us to see him in the right way. Well, how does Jesus fit in this whole thing now? All right, so I have to humble myself before God. But now in verse 27 of Matthew 11, it says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he whomsoever the Son will reveal him. All things have been delivered to Jesus. You know, if someone said that to you, you'd think, wow, what an arrogant person. You've received everything from God. You mean God's put everything into your hands? Yes, he's given everything into his hands. All things have been given into his hands for, he, for him to take responsibility for. And this is a monumental claim by Jesus. Everything had been given into his hands. All the souls of mankind are in his hands. The nations of the earth are in his hands and under his authority as the rightful king. All principalities and powers are under his control. All gifts and the promises of God, every promise, are now to be delivered through him and him alone. Every authority and power of heaven and earth is his. Wow, that's huge. And so the Bible tells us then that anyone who comes to know God through him is accepted. Anyone who comes to God through Christ is received. Anyone who trusts in Christ 
for, for their salvation receives eternal life. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 to 23. I love the way Ephesians explains this thing. Because Jesus said all everything's being given into his hands. Well, Ephesians gives us a nice description of that. It tells us in verse 20 of chapter 1, it says, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sat him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Isn't that an amazing verse? If you're part of the church, think about that for a moment. And this special arrangement that's happened is because there is this special relationship between them. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And, I, and, and the ones who, who can know the Father, the ones that he is, that he can reveal him to, that he will reveal the Father to. There is a special relationship between the Father and the Son as no one else actually has. No one else can have this bond and this understanding that they have toward each other. Only the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. But because the Son can reveal the Father, we can come to know the Father too. For those who have been born again by the grace of God, you understand what I'm talking about. You now know God in a personal way. We may not know, we may struggle in our finite minds to understand him fully, but we now know him in a personal way. We now don't see him the same way we saw him before. We now know him on a personal level. Something has made us alive and able to see him, to recognize him, to appreciate him, to love him, to experience his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness in our lives. No one can know this unless they come to God through the Son. There's an important distinction between knowing and knowing. You know what I'm talking about. You can know someone on an intellectual level. You can know them at a social level. You can know them at work. You can know them uh, when you get together, uh, when you go to the football together. But you may not know the person on a personal level. You may not know them at all. You may know them superficially, but you may not know them personally. But that's what Jesus, the Son, offers to us with respect to his own Father and himself. And this is what Jesus is leading us to, to listen to this. If you have your ears open, if a person comes to God, they must first come believing that he exists. They must humble themselves before him. They must accept his verdict of them and his, his <coughs> and what he says about them and their own pride. They must reject their pride and humble themselves before God. They must receive Jesus as the manifestation of God in this world and the only way to God. 
And from that point of view, Christ can give you rest because the foundation has been laid. Look at verse 28 now. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, what do you have to give me rest from? The average person, if you go out, if you go out in the street and you start speaking to them about, oh, you need to be saved, the automatic response is, what do I need to be saved from? Why do I need salvation? I'm good. They don't understand the concept. And so when Jesus says, you know, come to me, all you that labour, the average person will say, what do I need rest from? What, a longer holiday? I'm working a lot at work, a lot of pressure on me at work. Are you offering me uh, a rest from that? No. He's offering you rest from three main things. The first rest that he's offering to people is rest from a labour of a life without hope or purpose. You know, many people in the world labour to, to accumulate things. Remember the wheel that's going around? And they think that the more that they accumulate, the more that they get, the more that they experience, the more fun they have, the more happiness they give themselves, the more fulfilled they're going to be as a person. And the more they get, the more they realise as actually not that I need something else. And so they keep on going in the wheel faster and then faster and faster. And if I only had this, I remember being a kid growing up, you know, being a teenager, look at these teenagers over here. When I, was a, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a teenager because when you're a teenager, you had a lot of fun as a teenager. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be an adult because when you're an adult, you could drive a car and you could do a whole lot more things as an adult. You could go to places that you, you couldn't go to as a, as a teenager. Then when I became a teenager, when I became an adult, I still wasn't happy. I needed something else. And then something else, and then something else. And then I realised there is no fulfilment in life. The more you change, the more you get, the more you realise nothing's being filled up here. Oh, I just get satisfaction for a while, but then I realise, hang on a sec, it's still empty. Um, I have to go and find something else. A bit like, you know, filling up the petrol tank of your car. <laughs> You fill it up, you drive for a bit, the petrol tank's empty again. You've got to keep on filling it back up. It just doesn't end. And so most people, are really, they go through their whole lives, year after year go by, and, and decade after decade, and they look back at their lives and say, what have I done all that for? They don't realise, they don't actually stand back and see what they've actually done. They're never satisfied with where they are. They're never happy with where they are. They're always looking for something else. And so their whole lives revolve around trying to get more. And then you have these wonderful people called social influencers who are telling you you can be happy if you buy this type of thing, if you buy this sports shoe, or if you buy this uh, car, if you buy this uh, these clothing or whatever it is, then you're going to be happy because you're going to be just like me. And they are as empty as everyone else, probably more empty. If this is all there is to life, then it really explains why so many people take their lives. Because most people are caught in that wheel and they never come out of it. And they realise that the more they turn, the faster they have to go. It's the, it's the continual, there's never ever rest from that. And this is a world that has rejected God and refuses to find their peace with him find their fulfilment in him. So they keep on going around, around and around and around, hoping that um, 
all those um, wonderful chance random mutations that happened over millions and millions and millions of years that have come to this point actually mean something. It doesn't. If you believe that it's all just, if it's all just there by random chance, then it's all for nothing. It's not here. There's no purpose to you. There is no meaning for you. You are nothing more special than an animal. And that's unfortunately what most of the younger generation are growing up believing. But yet the world is filled with law. The universe is filled with law and order and amazing beauty. The world is teeming with life in every corner. It's, it's filled with people who are self-aware, aware of knowledge, aware of notions of good, evil, right, wrong, justice, virtue, nobility and love. Why on earth would random chance mutations of atoms and molecules bring you to that? The obvious vanity of people's pursuit in this world becomes evident to some as they give up. And they are fearful of being alone. You know why you know why they send spaceships to Mars and other places like that? They are so desperate to find life. Desperate. Because one, it doesn't make sense that there's life on this planet. It doesn't make sense. So they have to find, try and find life somewhere else because if they find life somewhere else, they could at least say, oh, it must be a law that's being followed. We just haven't worked it out yet. But if we are the only ones in this universe that are here, then that's a scary thought. Because if it hasn't happened anywhere else, then what is going on? What makes us so special here? And so they send rockets to Mars and they, they build bigger and bigger telescopes taking photos of where they of, you know, of where they could possibly be life. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for life everywhere at the moment. They're listening for space signals coming from space to hear if there's any anyone out there? Nothing. You know, the, the most of you have heard of Arthur C. Clarke. He was a futurist and a, and a novelist. He says this. Now, listen to his words carefully. So this guy's a very smart guy. He's, a, he's, he's an atheist, I think. But he said, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Now, that's smart. <laughs> that is a profound statement. The most profound statement I have ever heard. But... Um, but what, the, what he finishes is, is another thing, right? He says, either we are alone in the universe, or we are not. Um, but he finishes with, both are equally terrifying. Terrifying. Why is it terrifying? Well, if you're the only one in the universe and you just got here by chance, well, the next meteor that comes could just blow you up, and that's it. Poof. It's gone in a puff of smoke. There's no life. There's no meaning. There's no nothing. And so that's a terrifying thing. If we are all alone in this massive cosmos, you know, on a tiny speck of dust just floating around, and we're screaming at, hello, is anyone there? <laughs> but the other thought is, if they do find life out there, and it's much more advanced than us, which is what they're... Some of them hope for that, some of them don't hope for that. Because if they find life and they realise we are here... Um, Whenever, what they do know about colonization over the years is when the more advanced culture comes into a less advanced culture, there is someone who's going to lose out pretty badly. And it's not the advanced culture. 
because they drain them of all the resources. They take what they want. And so there's this, there's this fear that goes on either way. Because if they are malevolent beings, there's no reason they should be good. Why? They could come and kill us anyway. So I've got news for them. Yes, we are the only planet in the cosmos that has life on it. The only one. Because the Bible tells us that this is where he created. And there are other beings out there. We are not alone at the same time. And this should be even more terrifying because the being that's, that's there, that's showed himself and his fingerprint all over the place is an almighty God who is the judge of all beings. And he sets the standard. And yes, there are even angels as well. And that is terrifying too because there are good angels and bad angels and there is a war going on. So these people labour their entire lives with these fears, having these fears at the back of their minds, but not having a meaning for it. And so Jesus came to free us from the labour of life without hope or purpose. And he also came to free people and give them rest from religion. Religion. You know, okay, so we've gone through the people that don't believe in God, that have no hope and no purpose and no meaning. Then we have people that believe in a God or God's, and they're doing it just as hard, all right? And the reason they're doing it pretty hard is because they follow a religion. And a religion makes you work to get your reward. You know, most people these days, there are a lot of strikes going on. I notice in Sydney there's strikes going on. People arguing about wages and the Greens have come out and they've said, you know, oh, the, we're not going to go with the Labor parties, you know, whatever they want. We want an automatic increase for all the nurses and teachers or whatever else it is, and you know. And everyone's looking for an increase in, in, uh, in their wage. Why? Because inflation's going up, things are becoming more expensive. That means your dollar buys less, and so you want more money now. And everyone, everyone wants higher wages, which is fair enough. No one wants to work for nothing. No one wants to work, you know, and not be able to afford, uh, a, a, you know, a, a normal sort of life. No one wants to work hard for a little return. But what if your employer didn't guarantee you a wage at all? What if your employer said, yeah, sign up a dollar line, you can start working over here, okay, work hard, uh, what's my wage going to be? And they say to you, oh, there's no guarantee of that. We think there might be a, a reward for you, but you might not get it. Oh, what might I get? You might get an eternity in hell. Or you may get to come back as a, a rabbit or a cockroach or, I don't know, an elephant or a, I don't know. Um, you, can, you might be able to come, you mean there's no guarantee? You mean I can work for my whole life with this thing but not have any guarantee of an income? No, that's not part of the deal, sorry. How long would you work for someone who could not promise you the reward at the end? who did not know at the end what you were going to get based on what you put in. Does that make sense? That's the bargaining. That's the, what do they call those bargaining arrangements with the? An EBA. An EBA. Okay, so that's the EBA with religions, right? That's the EBA. That's what you get for, for working in a religion. People can sacrifice their whole lives, and some do. 
Some give their entire lives to in the service of that religion or the God that they, they perceive is, is the head of that religion without knowing they're going to be rewarded at all. There's a, a hope that they're going to get paid at the end, but they don't know. So they work diligently their entire lives and some people become monks and some people become nuns and other people give up their lives to do this and do that, to do that. And they may at the end receive the exact opposite of what they were expecting. And here comes Jesus. So all the religions of the world, none of them actually guarantee you anything. Think of that for a moment. So you can work your entire life and not get that pain. Here comes Jesus. And instead he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. And John 10, 28, he says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Here's Jesus who says, hang on a sec. You don't have to work for that. I'll give it to them. I'll give it to you. And he says, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So when it comes to labouring for things in this world, for your religious system, on the hope that it may pay off, Jesus utters incredibly profound and opposite things. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you everything up front. Imagine being paid all of your wages for the rest of your life in one big sum. Would you take that job? Turn to John chapter 6, verse 27 with me. John chapter 6, verse 27. So when it comes to when it comes to people who labor for things, who are on that mouse wheel, either by religion or by by being trapped in the world system. Jesus says in John 6.27, Labour not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endures unto eternal everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, well, What works? What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Did you get that? You want, you want to do the work of God? You want to receive eternal life? Just believe on him. That's the work that God wants you to do. Then focus your life on those things which are precious and lasting. I love that because they actually said, when he goes, when he offered them, don't work for me, work for something that's going to, you know, last forever. They said, oh, what do you want us to do? They were thinking he was going to give them a set of rules to follow. And he said, just believe on me and I'll give you everything. By far the greatest employer, though, apart from people working their entire lives for a system or for their own flesh or from religion, by far the greatest employer of people in this world is sin in the flesh, is sin. People work their entire lives without being aware that they are in servitude to the flesh and to sin. And Jesus offers rest from that. He offers rest from the labour of sin. Our flesh and our inclination to sin is a very hard taskmaster. It's a slave driver. 
It's the most evil of employers. Why? Because the only reward you get for all that effort is death. The wages of sin is death. And so this taskmaster will beat you and beat you and get you and demand that you provide for it until you die or it kills you. Now, people are slaves to their own nature, to their fallen nature, without realising they've been enslaved. They naturally serve their fallen nature and the sin that it craves. And it says, I want that. I want that. I want that now. Without understanding who they're serving. But the funny thing is that even modern psychology has picked up there's something wrong. Did you know that? Modern psychology has picked up there's something wrong with people. And they, say, and they say that there's this part of us that's called either the ego or the id, which is almost like a primitive part of us that demands things and is deceptive and can't be trusted. And they've picked that up, that it needs to be recognised for what it is, but they'll try to get it under control without God. And so they try to philosophize about how to deal with this thing, with this evil side of us, but without God. And they don't realize that the same heart, corrupted heart, that, that brings forth that, that being is the same one that's driving them to philosophize about it in the first place without receiving God. They fail to recognize the true spiritual nature of the heart. That same heart, remember, that, that cling to that fruit and because the promise was made that you'll be like God. And it still believes the same thing. It wants to be God. It demands to be God. And regardless of how much modern psychology tries to deal with it, it's always there lurking in the background. Turn me to Galatians chapter 5 for a moment. Galatians 5, we're almost done. Galatians 5, 19, 21. It says, now the works of the flesh are manifest. Yeah, they, 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 they revealed. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, Variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They're the manifestations of that flesh. But turn back with me to Romans now, Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Now that tells you the, the job that you've been called to do. As someone who is not saved, someone who has to serve a master. Now Romans chapter 6 verse 17 tells us now what happens to a person when they receive Christ, when they are saved. He says, but God be thanked for ye were the servants of sin. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, you believed in Christ. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. 
For as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, which means your parts of your body, servants to righteousness and to holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. But what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And so there's this, there's this transformation that takes place. That a person who is not saved is a servant and a slave to sin. But when a, a, Jesus frees a person from their sin, when, they, when their uh, sin is forgiven, they are free to now serve God. But there must be an exchange, which brings us to the final point here. Look at Matthew eleven twenty nine. There must be an exchange. You may have been made free from sin, but now the calling is to become a servant of God. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, this is not the yoke of an egg, right? This is a wooden beam that was put on the back of an animal that was moulded to the animal's back. So either on one animal, it could pull something like a plough or a, or a cart, and it wouldn't damage the animal, right? Um, or it, or it could, you could be yoked together under with more than one animal, maybe two, okay? So this thing would go on the backs of two bulls or um, uh, asses or, or donkeys, whatever else, or horses, and they would pull, and their strength together would pull that wood, and it would be tied up to something behind them, normally a plough. The idea of a yoke is a picture of servitude, is it not? It's a picture of serving. It's a picture of work, and it's a picture of labour. Okay? So the picture that Jesus is telling us here is that he wants us to put his yoke on. He's removed the old yoke, but we've been called to put his yoke on. Because without his yoke, without working for him, we end up gravitating back to the old one. We end up going around in circles. Because when a farmer directs a cow or whatever else is pulling that particular thing, a bull is pulling that plough. Ever seen a, a farmers do that as really straight lines? It's the farmer who is steering that thing. The farmer doesn't put his own more weight on it. The farmer is directing that thing so you get beautiful straight lines. Okay, and so you end up getting a, a, a very good result. But if you were to get rid of the farmer and leave the, the, the yoke on the bull and let the bull do its own thing, how straight do you reckon that's going to be? So Jesus says to us, I've taken the yoke from you. I've taken all this burden away from you. Okay, you now have reason to live. I've released you from the burden of your sin. I've freed you from an eternity in hell. I've given you every reason to trust in me. I've shown my love to you. Now put my yoke on you and I will direct your path. And so there is a calling for us now to actually work without putting on Jesus' yoke. And he says that we should learn from him. 
Why are we learning from him? Well, he's meek and he's humble. He's not a, he's not a, a rough and tough uh, employer. He's a gentle and meek employer, and we do well to actually serve him fully. He's paid by his life with his blood in order to give us eternal life. He's paid us eternal life up front. He's given us our whole payment up front. So we're free. But we're free now to serve him. And so do you want rest for your life? Don't take his yoke off. Keep his yoke on. You can't find rest. You cannot find peace. Following and serving yourself. If you are the person that you are following, that you are being led by, that you are serving, ultimately, you are under bondage again. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're wasted. You're wasting your life. If you want rest for your life, learn of him. Learn more what he's like. Because the more you learn from him, the more you want to work for him. The more you want to do for him. Because the more we realize how much he loved us and how much he gave for us, the more we want to give our lives to him. So the calling is for us to give our lives fully to him. You want peace? You want rest? Trust him. Live for him. Live fully for him. And if you don't know Christ this morning, then you are under bondage. You are carrying a heavy burden that you will not bear in the end. You will ultimately fall and fail. You will ultimately have to pay the price for your own sins when Jesus paid it all for you. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, come to him. You'll find rest for your soul and you'll find everlasting life as a gift. You'll find meaning for your life. And you'll find a relationship with God that will transform your life forever. God bless you. Thank you.